0: Our conference concludes with a look ahead to October term 2014. As of now, the court has 39 cases on its docket, down from last year but on par with recent practice so we can expect about 75 opinions by terms end. Here are some of the issues already granted. Whether a policeman's mistaken belief that someone had committed a traffic violation can form the basis of a lawful search. Whether a prison can prohibit a Muslim inmate from growing a beard whether a fisherman can be prosecuted under Sarbanes-Oxley's record-keeping provision for throwing undersized fish overboard. I'm not making that (laughs) up. Whether Congress can force the State Department to recognize Jerusalem as part of Israel on U.S. passports, and the circumstances under which criminal charges can attach to Facebook posts. These cases don't yet reach the high profile of recent terms, but if the court takes up one of the same-sex marriage or Obamacare lawsuits now at its doorstep, all bets are off. As Miguel Estrada and Ashley Boizel conclude in their essay in the Cato Supreme Court Review, after a 2013 term that featured several controversial decisions and kept commentators on their toes, all eyes will be on the court again in October. To discuss this coming term, we have Rich Wolf, Mike Carvin, and Tom Goldstein. Richard Wolf is the Supreme Court correspondent for USA Today, which means that he's read by all the leading Supreme Court advocates when they're traveling and have some time to kill in their hotel. (laughs) For more than 25 years, Rich has covered the federal government in all its forms, from the White House and Congress to the Supreme Court, but I'm taking this from his official bio, he's not to blame for the national debt. Rich, that sounds a bit defensive. Is there something we don't know about your pulling the levers of power from behind the USA today pie chart. Yes, I spent too many years
1: covering the federal debt, so uh,
0: Rich convinced me to invite him to be on this panel when we found ourselves on neighboring treadmills at a hotel gym, I literally couldn't run away from him. Tom Goldstein is a partner at Goldstein and Russell. He's argued 31 cases before the Supreme Court, typically the really boring ones that nobody notices. Perhaps more than any other advocate, Tom's work isn't associated with any particular perspective or ideology. In other words, he's a hired gun who has no principles of his own. (laughs) He also represents the full spectrum of litigants. Uh, For example, he's argued on behalf of corporate plaintiffs and defendants, individual plaintiffs and defendants, an immigrant, a bankruptcy debtor, various criminal defendants, employees, persons with disabilities, a class action objector, and a local government. So again, Pay for his microphone and he'll be your shill. So here he is with our microphone. Besides practicing law, Tom teaches Supreme Court litigation at Harvard Law School. Most importantly, Tom founded SCOTUS Blog, which allows anyone to become a Supreme Court expert overnight. Uh, SCOTUS Blog is the only blog ever to receive the Peabody Award and the only Peabody Award winner to be denied, be denied a Supreme Court press pass. Among Tom's accolades, the National Law Journal twice named him one of a hundred most influential lawyers in America, and GQ named him one of the 50 most powerful people in Washington, which I suppose is like the Hill's list of 50 most beautiful people. And finally, Mike Carvin, a partner at Jones Day who's argued numerous cases in the Supreme Court, but unlike with Tom, everybody's heard of these. They include the constitutional challenge to Obamacare, The decisions invalidating Sarbanes-Oxley's accounting board, preventing the Justice Department from bilking the tobacco industry, overturning the federal government's plan to statistically adjust the census, limiting the Justice Department's ability to create majority-minority districts, and upholding Prop 209's ban on racial preferences in California. Mike was one of the lead lawyers and argued before the Florida Supreme Court on behalf of George W. Bush in the 2000 election Florida uh, recount controversy, and he has a style that in a recent op-ed I charitably described as pugnacious, which I hope you'll get the pleasure to observe here. With that, Rich will start us off.
1: And, and as Ilya said, this, is, uh, this, this term is starting out a little bit slow, I'm afraid. Um, we have cases scheduled October, November, December, and enough, almost enough cases for January. And the cases that you just heard about are some of the most interesting. Uh, in my, from my paper's point of view, there's a lot of feature stories waiting for what will inevitably come in the second half of the term. And obviously that can include same-sex marriage. That could include uh, health care, which Mike will talk about some more, the ACA. It could also include something on contraception. There's the issue of the uh, religious nonprofits that is still to be decided. And it's not impossible that we could even get an abortion case or an affirmative action case. All of these cases are sounding familiar to you because they're all sort of repeats of cases that have been to the court in the last couple of years. So the first half is going to be uh, rather slow and filled with interesting but not wildly consequential cases. And then in the second half, particularly if we get which I'm pretty sure we will, a same-sex marriage case, or two or three, uh, it'll be another historic term. I'm going to run through four cases, and I'm going to do it quickly because we have a lot to cover. Uh, the first is a case involving Anthony Ilonis, uh, who um, it, this is really a free speech case for the 21st century, and it's going to be a lot of fun because the court is going to discuss Facebook and rap music. Um, Uh, In the briefs for this case, uh, we're getting uh, quotes from Eminem, from Guns N' Roses, from a group called The Whitest Kids You Know, which was new to me. Um, It involves a guy uh, named Anthony Alonis, who in 2010 had a pretty bad second half of the year. His wife left him after seven years, took the kids. He lost his job as a result of being sort of disconsolate about his wife leaving him. And then he began a series of rather dark posts on Facebook um, in which he threatened his employer and uh, to some degree his employer, which ironically was an amusement park, um, the police, uh, his wife, most significantly his wife, uh, the FBI agent who came to question him about this, uh, and generically speaking, in elementary school. Um, just for uh, by way of example, a couple of things he said, and you'll pick up on uh, the nuance here. He said, did you know that it's illegal for me to say I want to kill my wife. It's illegal. It's indirect criminal contempt. It's one of the only sentences that I'm not allowed to say. Now, it was okay for me to say it right then because I was just telling you that it's illegal for me to say I want to kill my wife. And he goes on like this. At one point he says, at one point he says it's kind of like a public service, what I'm doing. He also said, hell hath no fury like a crazy man in a kindergarten class. He said, I've got enough explosives to take care of the state police and the sheriff's department. And after the FBI, a woman from the FBI came to visit him, he posted, Little agent lady stood so close, took all the strength I had not to turn the bitch ghost. Sorry, I'm uh, quoting him directly. That's okay, you're a cato, not Harry. So. (laughs) His wife gets a protection from abuse order, and he's arrested and he's charged with violating 18 U.S.C. 875C, which says, whoever transmits in interstate or foreign commerce any communication containing any threat to kidnap any person or any threat to injure the person of another shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than five years or both. Uh, He was convicted by a jury. He was uh, uh, convicted on four of those counts. He wasn't convicted of the one, I think it was referencing the employer, but he was convicted for threatening his wife, the police, the FBI, uh, elementary school. Um, he got 44 months in prison and three years of supervised release. And so the question before the court is, what is the, the basis for which a person like this, what is a true threat? Is it just what uh, other people, those threatened and others would consider a reasonable threat is what a reasonable person would interpret to be a threat? Or does it have to be something where he had subjective intent? Uh, Two precedents for this, probably more, but two noteworthy precedents. One is from 1969 when a Vietnam protester at a political rally said something about if he was drafted, LBJ would be the first person he'd come after. And the court in that case said, well, that was conditional. He wasn't drafted. It was a political rally. And the crowd laughed. It wasn't really taken seriously. It was hyperbole. So that wasn't considered a true threat. Uh, The real um, precedent for this is a case called Virginia v. Black in 2003. And again, in that case, not all cross-burning was deemed to be intimidation. It depended on the context. But the Third Circuit said under its own, in this case, said under its own precedent, uh, the reasonable person's standard is enough. What a reasonable person might think is a threat is sufficient and they didn't think that the Virginia v. Black case uh, overruled that earlier, I think it was 1991, Third Circuit precedent. Now, the court has this before them, but they added, the Supreme Court has before them, but they added a second question, which was whether, as a matter, in addition to the First Amendment uh, question, they added, as a matter of statutory interpretation, whether conviction of threatening another person under this code requires proof of the defendant's subjective intent to threaten. Alonis says he didn't mean it. Um, He was just, you know, doing rap music on Facebook. He was, was, uh, and and from his brief, it says, the negligence standard would impose criminal liability on a vast array of first-person revenge fantasies that have always been staples of popular culture. The ACLU and other amici sort of say the same thing, and they also, the ACLU points out, online, you don't get any context. You don't get any inflection of voice. You don't get any nods and winks. You don't really know... What the speaker is intending, and the speaker doesn't know what his his or her readers are interpreting it as. So that's sort of the argument that they're making. Um, What will the Supreme Court do? First of all, I don't think they're going to have a lot of sympathy for Anthony Alonis, but they do have a lot of sympathy for free speech in the First Amendment. So if I was guessing, I would say that uh, they're they're inclined to rule his way. It's possible. I think it's possible. At least I'll, I'll wait for the lawyers here to tell me that they could reverse, but uh, remanded, it, and that the, the uh, lower courts could still try him under the subjective intent. Um, quickly on a couple of uh, uh, cases that touch on religion. Uh, on October, oh, so that case is coming up on December 1st, by the way. Um, I'm sorry, not December 1st. That case is coming, yes, December 1st. The second day of court, October 7th, there will be a case called Holt v. Hobbes. This is a major, fairly major religious freedom case, not so major as Hobby Lobby, but uh, along the same wavelength. Um, Hobby Lobby was based on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. This is the son of, son of RIFRA, which is RELUPA. So it's under the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. It involves a guy named Gregory Holt a.k.a. Abdul Malik Muhammad, serving a life sentence, a repeat offender for slashing his girlfriend in the neck and in the chest. Previously, he had been indicted for threatening uh, President Bush's daughters. Um, He wants to wear a beard in prison. And the Arkansas Department of Corrections says, no, they have a grooming policy that says you can have a well-groomed mustache, but you can only wear a beard of a quarter-inch length if you have a dermatologic reason for doing so. He has sort of compromised along the way and said, well, I'll settle for a half inch beard, but I need to wear a beard as part of my Muslim faith. Um, under Ralupa, it's a violation of religious rights unless the state can prove a compelling interest and that this is the least restrictive way of doing it. So it went before a magistrate judge and he said two things basically, one, I'm going to rule for the state they get deference here this is a public safety issue and two it's preposterous to think this guy could hide anything in a half inch beard so that seems to be uh the thrust of the case going forward on the one hand does the state get deference on the other hand isn't it ridiculous to think that a half inch beard as opposed to say uh body cavity hair on top of your head other other ways that somebody could sneak contraband or weapons into a prison the beard doesn't seem to be the likely thing The district judge in the Eighth Circuit ruled for the state, and they also noted that he gets a lot of other things. He gets a prayer rug. He gets to uh, have his own diet. He gets to observe his own religious holidays. So they didn't think that this uh, restriction was all that bad. His cert petition to the court was handwritten. It's a pauper case. Uh, But since then, he's picked up representation from Doug Laycock, a professor at UVA who's an expert on religious liberty cases, and the Beckett Fund, which uh, represented Hobby Lobby. So the issue is whether the grooming policy violates Rulupa to the extent that it prohibits the petitioner from growing a half-inch beard in accordance with his religious beliefs. Uh, The state calls him uh, not uh, a victim, but a Yemen-trained Muslim fundamentalist, and they say that the policy that they have protects against weapons, contraband. They also say that if they allowed beards and he escaped, he'd shave and we wouldn't be able to recognize him. The argument back is simply, why don't you take pictures of him with him without his beard? Um, and they also say, well, where would it end? If we, if we allow this beard, then do we have to give metal bells and wands for Wiccan rituals? And do we have to allow Sikhs to have kirpans, which are like knives? And do we have to allow tulukish inmates to spar with each other, which apparently is something that tulukish like to do? And please don't ask me about tulukish. Um, Here's the problem for the state. More than 40 other states allow these beards. They don't have such a restriction, so the state is in a severe minority. Uh, While they had the restriction, while they have had the restriction, the contraband problem has gone up, not down. And a particular problem is there was an error in their brief, which is very unusual. The uh, prison chief was, uh, let me see if I get this right, in his brief he said well, here's an example. We had an inmate who committed suicide with a razor that he snuck in, and it turned out that was wrong. He had the facts wrong. The razor was given to him. It was a big plastic razor given to him by prison officials to shave with. So um, kind of unusual, and there's been a flurry of paper. To- I don't know what this is called, but there have been documents since sent to the court that have gone on file from both sides pointing out this error from the state's point of view. Of I America.
0: believe they were actually tweets at SCOTUS blog that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: the Amiki are piling up on the prisoner's side, uh, Jews, Baptists, Sikhs, American Indians, former prison officials and wardens, uh, Alliance Defending Freedom um, from the right and Americans United for Separation of Church and State from the left, so he's got a lot of support. Um, and I don't know. I mean, it, it seems kind of a one-sided case to me. I don't know if we're into predicting here, but I wouldn't bet against him. Um, Zit, uh, and Ilya mentioned this. Zivotofsky, I wanted to not mispronounce this, versus Kerry. It wasn't Kerry at the time. This is the case involving the State Department's rule, going back to the Truman administration, that this case is coming up in November, by the way. This is um, The State Department has a rule that says, well, if so, and if an American citizen is born in Jerusalem... Uh, we're just going to say Jerusalem on the passport. We're not going to say Israel or Jerusalem, Israel. And that is gets to our policy toward Jerusalem, obviously something that is up for grabs in every iteration of Mideast peace talks. Um, this case is either much ado about nothing. It's one word on a passport, which is one of the arguments that uh, that Zivotofsky's parents and the brief makes is this isn't, we're not trying to restate U.S. policy. We're trying to put the word Israel on this almost 12-year-old's passport. In this case, has been going on almost since he was born. And on the flip side, the State Department would basically say, well, no, this is really about war and peace. We're not going to be able to do this in secret. It's going to get a lot of publicity if and when we are forced to put Israel on his passport, and it's going to be interpreted as the U.S. is taking sides. Um, So the guy's name is Menachem Benjamin Zivatovsky, born in 2002, um, the parents first wanted Jerusalem, Israel. Now they've since said, long ago they since said, they'd settle for Israel. But the passport still says Jerusalem. Um, the congressional law passed in 2003 under Republicans said that all who want this, in other words, folks like his parents, should be able to get it. If you want Israel on the passport, Israel should go on the passport. President Bush signed it, but he included a signing statement saying, I'm not going to enforce it because the executive has the authority to do this, not Congress. The Obama administration, similarly, they basically say it's unconstitutional. This has been in court uh, for more than a decade. The district judge first said Zivotofsky lacked Article Three standing. The D.C. Circuit sent it back and said, you need to make a ruling. The district judge and the D.C. Circuit both said it was a political question, so they're not going to make a ruling Supreme Court sent it back and said, no, it's not a political question. You need to make a ruling. And finally, last year, they sided with the State Department. D.C. Circuit said um, the executive branch is the one that recognizes nations. Zivotofsky's side says, well, we did this for Taiwan 20 years ago, basically. when Taiwan, When people wanted to have Taiwan rather than China on their passport, we allowed it. They cite Justice Jackson's comment from the 1952 steel mill seizure case where he said when the president is disagreeing with congress is when his power is at its lowest ebb. And they basically say what's the big deal? This is a word on a passport. This is not about changing U.S. foreign policy. But there are something like 50,000 Americans over the past 10-year period who are similar to Menachem Z- Zivatovsky. They have Jerusalem on their passport. And even the publicity of one such case, much less others wanting the same treatment, the State Department says could be a problem. Uh, the Senate has filed on Zivitovsky's side as an institution, not just members of the Senate. Uh, Forty or so bipartisan members of the House have filed for him. And basically the problem for the court, like NLRB versus Noll Canning, is there's no precedent. Um, there's nothing to go on. They've got to go back to the founders. They've go to, got to go back through various presidential administrations. Uh, And on the flip side, they've got to pretty much debate current Mideast policy. Um, If I was asked what the court would do here, I would say they would basically wish they had called it a political question a few years ago and not had to deal with it. But uh, I wouldn't bet against them siding with the executive branch. I I have one more case, but why don't we zoom along here? Because I feel like and the last case. Plus,
0: you can do it in 15 seconds. Well, the
1: last case is less significant. Let's see if we have time later.
2: Thanks very much.
3: Hold your applause.
2: Um, (laughs) It's great to be uh, here with you at Cato. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. All of the panelists really do appreciate it. It's an incredibly important institution, including with respect to what goes on at the Supreme Court. I'm going to talk about four cases. Two of them are constitutional, two of them are statutory. The constitutional ones start with a Fourth Amendment case. Uh, This is a case called Hain, or H E I. E-N. I don't know exactly how to pronounce it, but uh, here's what happens. This happens a, a decent amount. Uh, a cop pulls someone over. Uh, during the stop, the officer believes that the individual is acting suspiciously and says, hey, can I search your car? The person is on the way back from his Mensa meeting and decides that despite all the cocaine he has in the car, he will say yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Some said, 40 minutes. He said, I don't care. I don't care. Yeah. He was completely agnostic about whether he would spend the rest of his life in jail. Um, but uh, a clever lawyer realizes later on that the uh, stop was improper in the following sense and that this is a stop in North Carolina which requires that uh, when you uh, press on your brake, either one brake light uh, lights up or the horse stops. Uh, And it doesn't have a rule that says you have to have two functioning brake lights. Uh, And so the argument that he makes is that, look, there wasn't actually a reasonable basis to stop me, therefore there wasn't any opportunity to ask me whether I can consent to the search, uh, and therefore the fruits of the search have to be suppressed. The North Carolina Supreme Court says, look, what's required is that the officer have a reasonable basis to believe that there is probable cause to stop the vehicle. Uh, Not that there, in fact, be probable cause to stop the vehicle. And the fact that the officer didn't know and reasonably didn't know that a single functioning brake light was good enough uh, is a sufficient basis to stop the car. Because it was only in this case that the North Carolina courts interpreted the phrase a light to mean a light, uh, not two lights. Uh, And so the U.S. Supreme Court has granted, sir, to resolve a conflict over whether it is that officers uh, can validly search um, your car and or conduct any kind of search in reasonable belief that there is a violation of law. Or instead, if their belief, though reasonable, is mistaken, that requires suppressing the fruits of the search. Uh, This question comes up at the intersection of of two competing lines of recent cases at the Supreme Court. To the surprise of some, the justices have been increasingly favoring the broad application of the Fourth Amendment itself so that we get the GPS case, which you all will have heard about here, We have the cell phone search case, which you will have heard about here. We have Florida versus Jardines, which is when the cops bring a dog to sniff at your front door. In a whole series of cases, including car search cases, a famous case called Gantt, the justices have actually pulled back on the police's power to engage in searches. On the other hand, the court has been increasingly forgiving of mistakes by the police, So that it is held recently that if there's conflicting case law or if case law favored the officer's interpretation at the time but it's been overruled or if there were facts in the database that were mistaken and the officer made a stop through no fault of their own, all of that is fine. That we don't expect the officers to be held responsible and we don't let the criminal go free because of reasonable mistakes by the officers. And for that reason, I think that the state of North Carolina is overwhelmingly likely to win this case. Uh, And the justices are likely to say if it's a reasonable mistake of law when the officers stop you or go into your home or whatever, that's perfectly fine. The evidence won't be suppressed. Um, The first statutory case is one that Ilya mentioned briefly. That's the Yates case. To understand the Yates case, you have to know the Bond case, which you will have heard about here. And this is the case where famously Mrs. Bond is so excited that her best friend is Pregnant and is going to have her first child until she realized that the father is Mr. Bond, uh, and her best friend is pregnant with her husband, Mrs. Bond's uh, husband's child. Uh, She's upset at this uh, for some reason. You're apparently not supposed to do that if you're a best friend, have a child with your best friend's husband. Um, And so she gathers up a a series of chemicals and uh, inflicts what amounts to a very serious burn on the thumb of the best friend. Uh, an enterprising assistant U.S. attorney decides that she has violated the federal ban on chemical weapons use. Uh, and this case comes to the U.S. Supreme Court twice with the U.S. Supreme
0: Nick Court... Nick Rosenkrantz has stolen all your thunder on this. They're not going to laugh at the same no, stuff. Uh,
2: we're not. This isn't even about that. This is just the setup. Uh, so what happens is that she... Uh, this enterprising assistant U.S. attorney charges her with this. The Supreme Court decides this on the constitutional principle of give us a break. This can't possibly be a violation of the Chemical Weapons Convention. So what happens then apparently is that assistant U.S. attorney who charged Mrs. Bond with violating the Chemical Weapons Convention was transferred to Florida where he charged Mr. Yates. Now, Mr. Yates (laughs) was the captain of the Miss Daisy. And while out uh, doing his job as the captain of Miss Daisy, Uh, fishing for grouper, a uh, Florida state uh, officer working uh, also enforcing the rules of the Department of Commerce stopped the Miss Daisy and inspected the length of the grouper, because the Department of Commerce says that in order to harvest grouper to fish for them, they have to be 20 inches long, and he decided that a number, a substantial number, in fact, of the grouper on the Miss Daisy were in fact 18 and a half to 19 and a half inches long. Uh, that is not a crime. It is, will result in a civil penalty. You can even get your fishing license revoked. Uh, and the state official ordered uh, the captain, Mr. Yates, to bring the Miss Daisy, when he came back to dock, bring those fish back with him. Well, it turns out that the captain decided to get rid of the undersized grouper and have his uh, uh, the people on the ship substitute full-length grouper into the hold. Uh, when he got back to port, the official measured the grouper yet again and became suspicious that they had grown an inch and a half in that day uh, and decided uh, that something was afoot. Our our friend, the prosecutor of Mr. Bond, uh, Ms. Bond, decides that what he has done is violate Sarbanes-Oxley, um, which he should have known, obviously. Um, so in the wake of the Enron scandal, when Arthur Anderson was accused of facilitating Enron's destruction of the documents related to the scandal, Congress passed a law that says that it is a crime to manipulate, you know, uh, mishandle, or destroy any document, record, or other tangible thing. Uh, this assistant US attorney thinks tangible thing. I've held a grouper, or at least I've eaten one, uh, and therefore this is a violation of the prohibition on destroying evidence uh, in Sarbanes-Oxley. This will be resolved by the Supreme Court under the same principle of give us a break. Uh, It cannot possibly be that Congress had in mind that you were going to throw a grouper overboard when it decided that Arthur Anderson should not have destroyed 10 million documents relating to the Enron scandal. But it's a hilarious case. Uh, I don't even do it justice.
0: Um, Would you even so, call it fishy? Uh, uh, <laughs>
2: uh, apparently not. Um, <laughs> so uh, that is the that is the the Miss Daisy Yates case. Uh, the next constitutional case is one that law professors and some lawyers uh, love. It involves the delegation non-delegation doctrine. Congress is supposed to pass the laws. Sometimes Congress when it does pass something, decides that it will actually allow someone else to make the laws. Uh, And what the Congress has not been allowed to do by the U.S. Supreme Court is to pass a law saying to some other branch of the government frequently, this is a question of an agency, you shall decide what the law is without providing what the Supreme Court has called an intelligible principle. The Congress isn't required to actually do much. We don't, we don't expect the unreasonable, uh, but it has to give some guidance to the agency of kind of pointing the direction of the rule that it wants the agency to adopt. This is a cousin of that question. It involves the, the issue of when it is that Congress can delegate authority to a non-governmental actor. Uh, the non-governmental actor in this case is Amtrak, and the case is called the Association of American Railroads. Uh, and what happened here is that there is a law that says that private Freight railroads have to give priority to Amtrak trains in a proportion to, that me, is measured by uh, Amtrak's productivity, essentially. And Congress said to the Federal Rail Administration and Amtrak, you figure out what the measure of that should be so the rail, the private freight railroads will know how much priority they have to give to Amtrak trains. The Association of American Railroads, who are, represent the freight trains, uh, said, we think that you can't let Amtrak, which is a kind of quasi-governmental entity, not a true governmental entity, be involved in the setting of a federal standard. And the D.C. Circuit uh, agreed with that. The, so, the Solicitor General took the question up, and the government's going to win this case for either of two reasons. Reason number one is that Amtrak is just a kind of weird bird in the law. Uh, the Supreme Court has said that for some purposes, including the First Amendment right of free speech, it is a governmental entity. Uh, and I think that it's quite likely the Supreme Court will duck this entire problem by saying, look Amtrak, when they said that Amtrak would be involved in setting this standard, it was exercising essentially a governmental function. Therefore we don't even have to decide when it is that Congress can delegate some legislative responsibility to a private party. But in any event, I think it's likely to say that look, we've said in the, there have actually been some old cases where Congress would Uh, essentially engage in the process of setting a rule and require that some trade association approve the standard set by the rule. And the Supreme Court has said, okay, that's fine. The limitation on this is probably whether it is that the Congress is showing particular bias towards one group versus another group, and that would be resolved under a different constitutional principle entirely. So I think that this people lawyers do get very excited about non-delegation because it is a very important question when Congress itself has to take responsibility as the elected legislatures for the laws that they pass. Uh, But I think this case is going to end up being not much about anything. Uh, The next case involves uh, the question of when it is that an agency has to go through notice and comment rulemaking, this too is a favorite subject of some law professors uh, and uh, lawyers who are engaged uh, with agencies in different matters. It involves—it's a case uh, brought by the Mortgage Bankers Association, and here's what how it plays out. The Federal Labor Standards Act obviously says that certain number of hours can be worked, and if you work more than certain number of hours, then you're going to get overtime. There are exemptions in that. Not everybody gets overtime. And the Department of Labor a long time ago said in what's known as a substantive rule, which is an important piece of data, in a substantive rule that administrative employees do not get overtime. Well, then it became a question of what is an administrative employee, and the Department of Labor said, well, in an interpretive rule, that is to say the substantive rule is establishing substantive law, the interpretive rule is interpreting the law that exists, and it's just the agency's understanding of what the law means. It's not binding in any way. So the Department of Labor said in an interpretive rule, look, mortgage bank loan officers are administrative employees and, therefore, are exempt from overtime. And the banks went, yay. Uh, and then uh, the Obama administration looked back on that and said, yeah, we don't think so, uh, and changed its mind and issued another interpretive rule that said, actually, mortgage bank home law officers are not administrative employees, therefore, they do get overtime. And the mortgage bank said, boo. And they did what you really should do when something important happens, they hired lawyers. Uh, And the lawyers filed a lawsuit under the Administrative Procedure Act, and the Administrative Procedure Act says the following. If an agency is adopting a substantive rule, it is making law that will be binding, then it has to undergo notice and comment rulemaking. That is, it has to say what it thinks it wants to do, it has to open itself up to comments and suggestions from someone, and then it has to ignore them and do whatever it wants to do in the first place. (laughs) But when it comes to interpretive rules, it doesn't even have to bother with that. It can just do whatever it wants to in announcing its interpretation. And then we can fight about it later in court. Well, the DC Circuit, which gets a lot of these kinds of cases, has had to struggle with the fact of what's, where is the line between something that's substantive and interpretive? So for example, what if the agency adopts a substantive rule and then binds itself to a particular interpretation of that and then changes its mind. Is it in effect then changing the substantive law? And the DC Circuit said yes, and that when an agency establishes a firm position and then changes it, it has to go through notice and comment rulemaking, notwithstanding the fact that the Administrative Procedure Act says it doesn't have to. Uh, the uh, government is going to win this case again, this case as well uh, on the principle that at least not uh, absent extreme circumstances in which the interpretation is itself making binding substantive law, uh, then the agency, according to the statute, doesn't have to go through this notice and comment process. Uh, so those are my four cases, uh, and I look forward to talking about other upcoming petitions and questions that people have afterwards.
4: Um, yeah, I'm going to discuss two cases uh, and then maybe something that some that are coming up on the docket in October or thereabouts. First one that they've already granted, actually on direct appeal rather than a cert petition, is out of Alabama It involves the redistricting in Alabama. And it's the fight that's been dogging the court for at least the last 20 years whether and when you need to preserve or create. Uh, majority black districts. The Shaw line of cases said you can't subordinate traditional districting principles to do it, and um, that one version of that argument is presented in Alabama. The key thing to understand about this case, like virtually every voting rights case, is it has nothing to do with racial equality and has everything to do with partisan advantage. Uh, Republicans like majority black districts because create a majority black district that's almost inevitably a 90% Democratic district, and you can therefore pack the Democrats into that district, and the adjacent districts will be Republican opportunity districts. Democrats, conversely, don't like majority black districts because what what they would like to do is take about 15% out of a 65% black district and move it next to the adjacent district so that could be used to elect a white Democrat. And, and, I think, and I think that's an important point to underscore here, which is uh, the plaintiffs are arguing that these districts in Alabama are packed, that they're at 65 percent or 60 percent when they could really be 10 to 15 percent lower, so you're wasting black votes. But packing, of course, means that you're going to redeploy the excess 15 to 10 percent and uh, move it into a district where a black Democrat could be elected, where black voters would be able to select either a black or white Democrat to elect them. And the key thing to understand about Alabama is nobody put on the table, at least during the legislative process, anything that said, look, if you bring these black percentages down in these majority black districts, we can create an extra district over here where, where a black candidate can win. Um, the In other words, Alabama has just as many majority black districts, just as many districts where black representatives can be elected as any of the alternatives. So why, what are the Democrats about and the and the uh, NAACP about and saying you need to reduce the 15 percent? It's precisely what I said. You're, you're going to shift the 15 percent to turn a 10% black district into a 25% black district, then that might be enough to elect a white Democrat. Um, And and therefore, I think it it takes on a a very uh, cynical configuration. They're really not motivated by their abhorrence of the shapes of the lines. They're motivated by their desire to elect white Democrats. And, of course, the Voting Rights Act was not designed to elect white Democrats. If electing white Democrats in the South was what you were trying to do, you didn't need to have a Voting Rights Act because there was a whole whole bunch of white Democrats who were getting elected. So, how is this all going to play out? Uh, Because on the one hand, I mean, I think this is actually very interesting. Look, the conservatives don't like these majority black districts, particularly if they're drawn in an an ugly way. Uh, The liberals typically do like ugly majority black districts, but they also like democrats getting elected so they may overcome their aversion to the shoreline of cases and vote here uh with uh, the democratic plaintiffs in terms of the legal defenses that uh, are presented and should be presented which is one key fact that distinguishes this i think from all the the shaw cases where they were creating these ugly districts that ran down i-95 was at the threshold they were creating brand new districts right What Alabama here was doing was essentially preserving the districts that the Democrats had drawn in the prior uh, thing and therefore they could argue and they sort of argued, although it didn't get much prominence in the opinion, say, look, wholly apart from any racial consideration, because under Shaw you need to show that race was the principal factor, not just a factor. They said we had a lot of non-racial explanations. We like to preserve the cores of existing districts. We like to preserve existing districts. We like to protect incumbents. And therefore, we do that with all the white districts. We preserve those cores, so why should we have a double standard for the black districts? Why can't we just preserve them? The argument that I would have made that they didn't really push very hard, I guess because they thought it was unseemly, was, of course, politics. Um, uh, In this case called Easley versus Cromartie, the fourth variation of Shaw... Uh, Breyer wrote an opinion saying, look, to show that race motivated these districts, the plaintiff needs to affirmatively eliminate politics as a potential motivation. And I can tell you, as a redistricting litigator, we were like, ka-ching. I mean, uh, (laughs) for 30 years, we'd been denying that politics explained these districts. Now we could go into court and say, yeah, it was all politics, and you win. So it's, A, nice to tell the truth, and and, and it it, it gave you a a get-out-of-jail-free card. Now, Alabama didn't really push that argument, but I mean, I think there is an inherent uh, dislocation between what the uh, Democrats are arguing. On the one hand, they're arguing it's a political gerrymander, which would seem to refute the notion that politics was not not a, at least a, an explanatory factor e- equal to race. The other issue that's clearly in play here is uh, the now defunct Section 5. Alabama's principal uh, defense was, look, even if race dominated, we had to because we had to preserve all these districts because Section 5, particularly as amended in 2006, required us to do that. In 2006, Congress came in and said, you cannot, quote, diminish the ability to elect black representatives, minority representatives. Uh, which was des- expressly designed to overturn a Supreme Court case called Georgia v. Ashcroft, where they had allowed you to take 60% districts down to like 51, 49%, and they said, no, we absolutely don't want you to do that. So the three-judge court said, look, they were just following Section 5 for, in my mind, inexplicable reasons. A majority of the Supreme Court has said if you're following Section 5, that's a defense to a Shaw violation, uh, so they win. Um, the... Justice Department has weighed in on this and rather disingenuously said, well, Section 5 doesn't require you to maintain the exact percentages uh, in these old black districts. We just say you can't reduce the percentage to a point which diminishes their ability to elect. Well, what number might that possibly be? You have to prove to the Justice Department that any reduction in the black percentages is not going to... Uh, affect the ability to elect, and it's a very difficult and complex thing. You can't, you can't find election results that, that will help you prove that. So many states uh, said, look, uh, the path of least resistance is just not to reduce the percentages at all. Um, so I, I think, and, and then the other argument um, that uh, is involved here is the Shelby County decision, which uh, struck down Section 5, which has, I think, two things that will affect the outcome of this case. The first is what I call the idiotic time machine argument, which uh, the dissenting judge bought in this case, which said, uh, look, Section 5 was struck down in 2014, so they don't have a compelling government interest, to which the majority responded was, well... The districts were drawn in 2012. They didn't have a time machine. They had to get the districts for the 2012 elections. So whatever the law was at the time is obviously what, what is relevant to the compelling government interest. But the other thing I way I think Shelby County will affect this entire debate is because, at least subterranean, is I think there's five members of the court who would be quite concerned if you were telling them that that if they approve this, that that means these majority-minority districts will exist in perpetuity. Um, And the good news is the short answer now is not anymore because Section 5 is gone. So the only question you have to resolve is whether you're going to make new law and and initiate an a mid-decade round of redistricting, or just wait till the next redistricting and everybody will be playing under a different regime where they will no longer have Section 5 as a justification for maintaining majority districts. Uh, How this is going to come out, I'm I'm confused. I think it'll have a lot to do with... There's a lot of boring facts that I won't get into. There was never a real district-by-district analysis here, so one way to split the baby might be to say, look... Uh, we don't want these general pronouncements on either side. This is a war of generalities. Go back and tell us what the districts would have looked like had race not been a factor, and then then the court can make some kind of intelligent uh, decision. Um, alternatively, they could uphold it, either pursuant to the Section 5 rationale or pursuant to the notion that there were non-racial reasons to preserve these districts. But I frankly think it's anybody's guess, given the hostility of the conservatives to... Uh, majority black districts and given the hostility of the liberals to Republican districts. So um, we'll, uh, uh, we'll see what happens. The other case is uh, in McLean, it involves uh, a whistleblower issue which has gotten obviously a lot of media in the wake of Snowden and the NSA. When can you uh, reveal things? And this will be interesting to USA Today readers at that level of generality, but... Uh, <laughs> Not, not. uh, Sorry. To New York Times and USA Today readers at that, that, my point is that, as always in these cases where you're trying to balance these very important conflicting values of privacy versus the First Amendment right to speak, the legal issue has hardly anything to do with that. The legal issue here is the very narrow one of the, the whistleblower statute says, look, revealing internal agency secrets is not protected if it's specifically prohibited by law. If the uh, revelation you're making. And here we had an air marshal who didn't like the fact that they were in, in uh, I think, I think 2003 or so, they were reducing the number of air marshals flying in and out of Las Vegas. That's where he was. So he went public with this and said this is bad. Obviously, the agency was quite concerned because now he's telling all terrorists who want to go to Las Vegas that there aren't going to be any air marshals on the planes. He was arguing that this was an effort to get them to put more air marshals on the plane. But again, the statutory issue is whether or not it's specifically prohibited by law. There was a uh, <coughs> excuse me, TSA reg that said you can't do this. You can't reveal the number of air marshals. for so very specific. So the real question is when the statute says specifically prohibited by law, is it talking about regulations or is it talking about statutes? Um, the argument that the plaintiffs have is, is relatively convincing. Um, they have three arguments for why law doesn't mean regs. The normal presumption is law does include regulations under this Chrysler case, unless the context clearly shows otherwise. Their argument here is, look, a different part of the statute says laws, rules, and regulations. So we know that when they want to include rules and regulations, they know how to do it. Their second argument, which will resonate with some members of the court, is their specific legislative history that says, This only means statutes, it doesn't mean uh, regulations. And then they've got a relatively logical argument, which was, look, if the agency can pass regs telling you not to disclose anything, and that takes it outside of the whistleblower statute, the agency could unilaterally reduce the whistleblower statute to a nullity just by passing a reg saying, don't disclose anything. the government's response to that last argument is no, now we're not talking about general regs, personnel regs, but if you have a specific statutory command as you did here to say pass a reg, preserving the confidentiality of things like air marshals, that kind of reg is included uh, within the uh, uh, law uh, statute. They've got not great responses to the, either the legislative history or the other language in the statute argument. I would think the government's on relatively thin ice here, but I, I think that, A, there'll be some general sympathy that we don't want air marshals running around telling the nation when, when planes are undefended. And people like Scalia, I think his natural instinct would be twofold uh, favoring um, uh, the government here, which would be, I think of regs as law, See all my Chevron stuff. And I hate legislative history, so I'm not going to look at that as a factor. So I would think at least his, his vote might be in play on this statutory question. In terms of more interesting cases that are coming up, the ones that you should all circle on your calendar is the landmark case in King versus Burwell, which not coincidentally is my case, which is the Obamacare challenges that was, uh, were briefly referenced before. Um, there were parallel proceedings essentially in both the D.C. Circuit and the Fourth Circuit, uh, posing the vexing jurisprudential question of whether or not the word state means federal in a statute. Uh, which, for the non-legal mind, might s- seem to be a simple case, but has bedeviled at least all the democratically appointed judges uh, to have heard this case. And I'm quite serious. It says you get these subsidies, you get these tax credits, if the exchange was established by the state under Section 1311. The Obama administration um, has built... 36 exchanges by HHS under Section 1321. And they want to say, no, even though we are not exchanges built by the state under 1311, uh, you can also have subsidies on exchanges built by HHS under 1311. I won't bore you with the arguments on why state means federal, but apparently if you look at purposes and context and things like that, then you come back and it's magically transformed to mean precisely the, the opposite of what it says. So, as you can tell in my, what was it, pugnacious way, um, <laughs> this is the simplest case of plain language statutory interpretation to ever be in a federal court. Um, uh, the DC Circuit, uh, saluting to the Obama administration, said, yes, we, will he- we won in the DC Circuit. They said, okay, we'll, we'll rehear it on Uh That's going to be argued December 17th. The Fourth Circuit, where we lost in front of two Obama appointees and uh, Roger Gregory, uh, we immediately went to the Supreme Court, basically saying, it doesn't matter what happens in the D.C. Circuit en banc. Uh, This misreading of the statute is literally authorizing tens of billions of dollars of subsidies to people on these exchanges who think that their insurance is being paid for. This costs a lot of money to the Federal Treasury. This creates tremendous detrimental reliance among these people. It'll be quite chaotic to undo it, particularly if you allow this system to percolate for another two or three years and then strike it down, we will be uh, invested. So, if you think, as you should, that what uh, eight Demo- what the newly found Obama appointees on the D.C. Circuit think about this is not going to influence your decision, your are the Supreme Court decision, on whether to take this case, you might as well just take the Fourth Circuit case now Because if you wait to resolve the D.C. Circuit on banc decision, we're talking about next October term, and then this uh, regime, which seems to be facially illegal, will have existed for another year and a half. The government's filing its opt to our cert petition on October 3rd. I think it's going to be on the conference in early November, so we'll know at some point in November, probably, uh, whether or not they're going to go ahead and wait for the D.C. Circuit to grant on banc, or whether they're just going to go ahead and... Uh, take the case regardless. The last one, which I
0: guess... Mike, I'll, I'll just uh, point out there's also the similar cases that that aren't yours uh, yet, at least, uh, from Oklahoma and Indiana, and the uh, the circuit courts there are probably more favorable to the challengers, so it's likely that at the end of the day there'll be a circuit split regardless.
4: So, look, yeah, I was speaking in somewhat shorthand, but that's an excellent point. There's two pending cases. Um, this, this issue's not going to go away. And so the, the clear common sense point, and I think compelling practical point is does it make a lot of sense to let these cases percolate which is both of which are still in the district court or deal with my if I lose thou my challenge in the fifth circuit which will be coming and then have this all come back to the supreme court in 2017 or 2018 when we've had four to five years of reliance on this um, unethical uh, illegal regime uh, or wouldn't it make a lot more sense to figure it out right now and let everybody know before we get too deeply involved in this. And we've, in fact, invoked our NFIB president, where, to the Justice Department's eternal credit, they, uh, w- they lost in the 11th Circuit. They could have stalled, and they could have waited on all this. They could have gone on Bonk 11th Circuit, and they might have won to, to eliminate the split, as they're trying to, to do here. But they thought it was important for everybody in the nation to know whether or not the individual mandate was going to be part of the law or not. Similarly, whether or not these hundreds of billions of dollars of tax credits are part of the law should be equally compelling. It should be a reason that the court should sort it out now rather than wait for these cases that aren't going to get up there for two to three years. Uh, and then, right. uh,
0: I know you wanted to jump to something that will be actually a logical segue from yeah. where I want to start in on the whole panel. Yeah. Uh, what Mike hasn't gotten to uh, are the marriage cases uh, that are coming out of every single circuit, it seems. Uh, uh, no coincidence there. It's a nationwide strategy. Cato's been filing in them, uh, the same brief that we've filed since, uh, since Perry on equal protection, Um, So, we'll start with Mike, but I want to hear from every panelist what you think the Supreme Court is going to do with these marriage cases. So far, every circuit court that has ruled has ruled in favor of the challengers, striking down the state laws, whether on marriage itself or on recognition of -of out-of-state same-sex marriage. There's still a possibility of a split or a ruling for the state. Uh, We'll see what Jeff Sutton does in the Sixth Circuit. Uh, We'll see the Fifth Circuit uh, even more. Uh, 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 pro-state, I would say pro- pro-state marriage law. Uh, we'll see uh, what happens there. Anyway, Mike, what do you think the, the court's going to do?
4: Although I'm, I'm very, I, I don't have a firm instinct on it. My, my guess would be that in the normal course, even absent a split, just to be clear, the fourth, seventh, and tenth have struck down anti-gay marriage laws, required constitutionally gay marriage. The sixth and the fifth are cases pending. The sixth been argued in front of Jeff Sutton. It looks like he's going to uphold the gay marriage laws in front of him, so you could get a split. Because marriage is a tax? Is that the... uh, Yeah, exactly, exactly. So so you may get a split within three months or so, but then maybe somebody will go on banc. My basic point on this is you're striking down important state laws that have existed since the dawn of Western civilization. Normally the court wouldn't say, gee, we need a split to review this, You've got a chaotic legal situation where half the country, uh, gay marriage gay marriage is constitutionally required and the other half it's not. So I think in the normal course, they would step in now. Plus, if they think all of these challenges are going to be coming, eventually we're going to get a split. We might get in now. So the Occam's razor argument would be sure they're going to get in and take it. The only minor caveat I have to that is whether or not the justices are worried about what Anthony Kennedy is going to ultimately do. If the four four conservatives think he was just, you know, very anxious in the Prop 8 case to constitutionalize gay marriage, they might say, well, let's postpone things and not not have this ruling come down now. The only problem with that scenario is wait till when. I mean... uh, uh, the only way that Kennedy's vote is not going to be dispositive is if we get a Republican president and one of the Democratic ju- justices leaves so they can be replaced with another conservative Republican. That's a relatively far-fetched scenario and certainly one that might not occur until 2018. And the notion of waiting around on this till 2018 or so seems to me relatively far-fetched. So if you force me to bet, I think they'll take the cases and Fisher cut bait this term. Tom, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm confident that's right. I think that the only other thing I would throw into the mix is that the more conservative members of the court who think it's obvious that the laws are constitutional, that, you know, however many there are, um, I think will believe that it's can only get worse for their perspective the longer they wait to take the case, that the kind of tide of history here seems extremely strong, and to be picking up kind of centrist, centrist conservative judges, not uniformly, as we may see with, with, with respect to Jeff Sutton, but uh, I think they'll decide we might as well take it now or, or we're going to be less, still less likely to, to have these laws upheld.
0: Are you going to make that prediction unanimous?
1: Uh, totally unanimous. I think they'll probably take... I don't think they're going to... All of the seven cases from five states that are from... There's seven cases from five states involving three circuits that are all on the September 29th conference. I wouldn't be surprised if they wait a couple of weeks beyond that. Uh, I don't know that we're necessarily going to hear about that a few days after that conference or whenever those orders come out. But I would think by mid-October, regardless of whether the 6th is in or not and regardless of whether they go one way or the other, I think the court feels like they've got to take this. And then the question is, what do they take? I think the Utah case is perfectly poised to be one of the course uh, of the cases they take. It has everything in it. It was first all along by a nose in some cases, as it got through the district and circuit courts. Uh, so I think they take that, but I think there's also a good chance that they take more than one. And so at that point, I don't know whether you have the liberal justices favoring...
0: uh clear that's case, more than one case, not more than one spouse. We are talking about Utah.
4: <laughs> yeah.
1: I think they... Um, We'll take the Utah case probably by mid-October and maybe one other circuit. I don't think they would take Utah and Oklahoma. I think they might take Utah and Virginia, or they might take Utah and a Seventh Circuit. The liberals might like to have that Posner decision uh, opinion uh, before the court. Um, But it is possible that they take more than one case.
4: I mean, other than bringing Posner in front of the court annoying anybody who believes in law, Um, what... um, (laughs) No, I mean, no, I'm serious. I I just don't know. Uh, Is there any factual differences that could affect somebody's view of of the constitutional issue? I just don't know. I don't think so. Uh, I think, I think
1: actually, I think actually Utah has all of the, Utah has everything in it. Utah has the recognition from other states. Utah has, I think they have, um. Uh, Children involved, the court would want. I mean, that would be the reason. If the court wanted to discuss very, which they could discuss anyway. I don't think you have to have a child involved in one of these um, potential marriages. But um, I don't know. I mean, it could be just that they want to hear that they think it's momentous and they want to hear from more uh, high-priced litigators.
0: All right. Let's move to audience questions. Please uh, wait for the microphone. Uh, identify yourself and any affiliation. Uh, I don't have the same rules as Trevor. I would like you to identify yourself. And uh, actually ask a question. <laughs> right there was the first hand. And then we'll go over here.
5: Hi, uh, Pat Spann, just myself. I must confess, I am not an attorney, but I do have a question um, um, about the uh, ACA, a.k.a. Obamacare. Um, I've always wondered, in my naivete, if Roberts had inserted a poison pill by talking about it's a tax. The individual mandate is a tax. Obviously, the individual mandate didn't didn't uh, initiate in the House of Representatives. And I think I read somewhere someone had brought that up, but I've, I haven't heard anything about it since. Is that perking along somewhere, that the argument that if it's a tax, it had to originate in the House of Representatives and it didn't.
0: I'm going to actually refer that question to another audience member. Give uh, Tim Sandifer the, the mic here. He argued that case in the DC Circuit.
6: That's right. I'm Tim Sandifer. I argued that case back in May in the DC Circuit. We got a surprise, surprise, unanimously adverse decision from the DC Circuit. We're petitioning for um, rehearing on Bonk, which is due in a couple of weeks. And there's another case in, I believe, the Fifth Circuit that, where that issue is also presented. That has not yet been set for oral argument. Um, and that's the status as it is. What, what the D.C. Circuit ruled was that it's not a bill for raising revenue, even though it's a tax. Um, and the distinction between a bill for raising revenue and a tax is that, a, according to the court, a bill for raising revenue is a bill that, you know, its general purpose was to get people to buy Obamacare. <laughs> Um, There is no you-know-its-general-purpose clause in the Constitution, nor is there, I think, any basis for saying you-know-its-general-purpose is the dispositive consideration in determining whether a bill that levies a tax is a bill for raising revenue. However, um, this was probably the most advantageous way for our side to lose this case because it does not present what I think is the more complicated question, on which we also ought to win, which is whether the Senate can do what it did in this case, which is take a House-passed bill, scoop out its entire contents. It was six pages originally related to granting uh, tax credits for um, people buying houses. Substitute the 2,000-page behemoth that is Obamacare and call it macaroni. Uh, The court did not address that question at all. It simply said because it's not a bill for raising revenue, that whole origination clause thing does not apply. And that's where we stand right now.
0: There was somebody's hand over here you've forgotten your question, then I'm opening the floor again. I saw right here.
7: Concerning the Alabama cases, has anybody argued or suggested that there is or there is not a constitutionally protected right
4: under the 15th Amendment to be represented by somebody of your own race or your own ethnic background? Because that's really... What underlies all of this is a belief that you've got that right. Is anybody challenging that or anybody raising that question? Yeah, well, to be clear, the 14th and really probably the 15th Amendment were ruled in Shaw to provide just the opposite that the court, that states can't engage in racially preferential activity simply because they want to align voters of a similar race with their representatives and that and that, that kind of, if you will, reverse discrimination is just as problematic under the 14th Amendment as, as normal efforts to uh, hurt non-minorities. Where that right comes from, frankly, is section two or section five of the Voting Rights Act. And you can interpret section five in a lot of different ways, but essentially it says you can't, as I said, diminish the ability to elect which is another way of saying if you have a black incumbent at this point, you can't hurt his reelection election uh, chances. And so that, in essence, creates this right, which even though it seems to be in stark, irreconcilable tension with the command of the 14th Amendment as enunciated in Shaw, for some reason a majority of justices said, look, if you're complying with Section 5, that somehow uh, is a compelling government interest which justifies the race consciousness that would otherwise violate the 14th Amendment
0: there, and then we'll go back there after that.
5: Hi, I'm Drew Clark. I have a couple affiliations, but most relevant is I write a weekly column for the Deseret News in Salt Lake City. Okay. I want to come back to the marriage uh, issue, the same-sex marriage issue, and start off by noting that there already is a circuit split in the 2006 Citizens for Equal Protection v. Brunner out of the Eighth Circuit, and it's directly on point, 14th Amendment case. So um, obviously not many people talk about it or know about it. Uh, Could you address that issue? But secondly, um, other states... um, Just walk me through some of the logic why the Supreme Court might or might not want multiple circuits involved. I mean, particularly if the Utah case is the perfect vehicle, as several of you have mentioned. What's the benefit of adding Virginia's Fourth Circuit when Virginia is not even defending its law fully? So just, again, walk through the pros and cons why different sides might or might not want multiple circuits on this case.
4: You were indicating before, I don't know that there's any substantive reason. The idea is it's a big case you might want to hear from different lawyers. I guess cutting against that slightly, and I'd be interested in your reaction. Is as far as I can tell, whichever one of these cases chooses is going to be well lawyered, right? It's not as if right. uh, it's not as if you won't get a good advocate on both sides, uh, or, uh, because the Supreme Court's bar has been lining up uh, behind these. <laughs> gay marriage challenges.
1: I didn't have much to go on other than uh, from the reporting I've done. I've heard I've had a lot of people smarter than me say that because there are so many circuits reporting you got three already you could have more than that that it's possible that they'll take more than one case. That would be more more likely if a case say from Oklahoma uh, where there's only one set of plaintiffs left and and there were some standing issues. If you had Well, and the other issue is simply this. If this goes on for a while and you have more than one case and suddenly there's something, something goes awry with uh, the plaintiffs or something goes sour with the case, you you don't want to have nothing left. And so that's always an argument for having more rather than less. What do you think, Tom?
2: I mean, it is a huge deal, uh, but because nobody's pointed out any differences. If they were worried that there were differences between the cases, they'd probably say better safe than sorry. The, when they took the Windsor case on DOMA a couple of terms ago, they really were presented with the same possibility of taking a whole series of cases and decided to do just one. So I think I think the odds are that they'll search for a reason, should we take more than one of these and come up empty?
5: Uh, Gabe Lattner, Cato, I have a question about the mechanics of the court itself and specifically uh, last year's massive relistment phenomenon. Uh, and I was wondering if you think that's something that's going to continue in the future and what, if anything, is driving it.
2: So I can explain probably what that's about. The The Supreme Court has a process where we file cert petitions, which we're paid a lot of money to do. We work incredibly hard on them and then they're denied. Uh, to our great frustration but occasionally the justices four of them vote to hear a case uh, the i think it it became apparent that inside the building the justices became frustrated with the fact that sometimes they were granting cases that they later had to dismiss so you know rich gives the example something goes wrong with a case but maybe the facts turn out not to actually present the case and so it appears that last term they adopted a new policy to, intended to head off that effect, and that is if, if there are four justices who vote to hear a case, they will then assign it to another law clerk to take a look at the case for one more week and come back and just confirm that it actually does properly present the question so that there isn't a problem with the case. And uh, that played out for the entire second half of last term, and I have no reason to believe that it would change at all. And so I would expect them to, by all accounts, that's what's going on. And they seem very happy with that. Just to, to, you know, another better safe than sorry process.
0: I saw a hand here. Not you. There was someone in front of you. But I get. we'll take you. That's fine. We have I'm multiple Joe, microphones. Raise your hand. I'll direct people
7: to I'm you. I'm Joe Schmitz. Uh, I represent 43 members of the House Representatives in both of those origination clause cases that Dan just mentioned. And um, I have a question for Mike, because Mike also represents some members of the House. um, I think maybe some House leaders. Um, Since this Origination Clause issue is fundamentally a prerogative of the People's House, the House of Representatives, uh, and there is a pending unicameral resolution that essentially says the same thing that 99 members of the House have said in the two Origination Clause cases, can you imagine any reason why the leadership of the House wouldn't bring that resolution to a floor vote and actually, as the House of Representatives, kind of throw a flag and say, well, we object. Because there really was no chance for the House to object under the leadership of Nancy Pelosi, who we all recall saying when they passed Obamacare, you have to pass it before you know what it says.
4: I, you know, I'm not Boehner's legislative floor advisor, I suspect it would be a question of whether or not they want to go back and create yet another issue about Obamacare that changes the prior issues. My own view, Joe, is it's not going to have any effect on how the, how the court's going to interpret it, whether or not, uh, you know, whatever, whatever amount of years later the House of Representatives says this, this was a bad thing. I don't also know, from an institutional prerogative perspective, and, and perhaps the guys who've litigated this case would know if your theory in the Obamacare case would undermine a whole lot of laws that also didn't originate in the house that Republicans like, I suspect the list is relatively lengthy. I don't know what it is, but, but no, I mean, that could, that certainly could be another factor. I agree with what you were saying before that the DC circuit chose literally the worst analysis possible, uh, to defend this. Um, and, and, uh, Whether or not that entices the Supreme Court to step in because it's so facially stupid, I don't know. But uh, but we'll see.
3: Nasa Rich, how can
4: a tax not be considered revenue? (laughs) I I guess the same way a state can be considered a federal. It's... uh, (laughs) uh, uh,
0: Or or, or that a mandate can be a tax?
4: uh, It's called uh, result-oriented jurisprudence, where they don't want to be confused with a lot of law and logic and facts. They're just, uh, so I I don't think anybody believes it. I think they were choosing a way to hurt your case, and I think they chose quite inaptly, because I think the smart move would have been to say, look, the Senate did, it did technically originate in the House because they took this Shell House law and and did, did an amendment in the nature of a substitute, which took, I think it was some fishing law, and threw in Obamacare and said, okay, this is just an amendment to that underlying thing, which of course is highly technical and, and, and obviously superficially wrong, but it does present an interesting question for the court as to whether they're going to look behind legislative procedures or just accept the Senate's word for for what they did. That's a complicated question. The Whether taxes to raise revenue is, is a non-sequitur.
0: Right. We had an event here at Cato about this case in May featuring Tim, uh, and you're welcome to have a look at all the details. Not seeing any hands, I want to pose a question to the panel. Um, We haven't seen anything on the Second Amendment at the court uh, in quite some time, despite the charitably, I'll call it, willful confusion in the lower courts about what the right to keep and bear arms actually protects. Uh, Is that simply because... Neither the conservatives nor the liberals are sure of Kennedy, Uh, and Kennedy only has one vote to grant on cert, or is there something more going on? Because there's certainly been a whole host of different types of vehicles uh, that have been presenting to them uh, out of various states.
2: Well, I don't have the feel that Justice Kennedy is actually the limiting agent on the Second Amendment. If you were to go by the oral argument in the Heller case, he was pretty animated about the importance of the right. Um, You know, my sense is that the justices, the the Second Amendment was regarded for a long time as a typo, and it has taken some time for some of the issues related to it to be fleshed out in the lower courts. And I think the, you know, the justices quite openly struggled with what the appropriate level of scrutiny was. And so I think they are... Probably, you know, the, the more conservative justices are confident that four members of the court are going to interpret the right very narrowly, and they themselves are trying to figure out the scope of it. And so I think they are, you know, led, biding their time to some extent. But I wouldn't think that it's because they're concerned that Justice Kennedy will, will read the right too narrowly.
1: The, the big issue
2: is the concealed
1: carry issue, and, and, and well, carry at all. Well, right, and and in public, and and um, I'm trying to recall, there was the, Illinois had the most severe law, and uh, the others were all going- And our Simon in,
0: lecturer struck that down.
1: And, and the others were all, right, and the others were all going in one direction, so there was no there was no split yet or anything like that on concealed carry, if I recall. So. No,
0: I mean, the Seventh Circuit, Judge Sykes' opinion struck down Illinois' oh, law sorry. about carry. Sorry, it was a Posner, it was a Posner opinion, okay. Oh, okay. It, was she on that panel, I'm just remembering? I don't think so,
4: but then the Illinois like, legislature-
0: Right, right. Alan, you want to say anything about this? Alan Gura, who argued Heller and McDonald's. More speculation to the mix, give him a microphone. Put you on the spot.
3: Yeah, I don't think it's fair to speculate as to why the Supreme Court does or doesn't take a case. They reject any number of wonderful cases every year that uh, could have been uh, reasonably granted. Uh, Last term we did get to conference three times with Drake. The uh, Third Circuit case was relisted twice. So obviously there's some interest in the court in the issue. Uh, They wouldn't have talked about it so much uh, before denying cert if there wasn't somebody there who wanted to take a look at it. So uh, the cases will uh, keep being presented. Uh, Judge Sykes was not on the Moore versus Madigan panel, although she did author the uh, earlier opinion in Ezell versus City of Chicago, uh, which is
4: I'm sorry. Uh, was Drake one of these public carriers? That's right.
3: Drake was the Third Circuit case. Drake was a little bit more extreme than the other cases. In Drake, the Third Circuit was the only court that actually uh, reasoned that the uh, there is no right to carry a gun in public. Some of the other courts upheld restrictions, assuming that there is a right, and then upheld the laws. In Drake, the first line of argument that the majority adopted over a very strong dissent and the en banc uh, vote later was eight to four. But in Drake, the majority said that because New Jersey's law was inconsistent with the right to carry a gun, that's evidence that that there is no such right that exists. And otherwise, they enacted it, therefore it's self-constitutionalizing. And under that rationale, there's nothing that's unconstitutional. Uh, Nonetheless, um, that's where the matter stood. There is nothing currently that's, going to come before the court that I'm aware of in this coming term. The, the Ninth Circuit struck down essentially California's uh, proper, I mean, um, good cause requirement uh, back in uh, February. However, that is um, probably not going to be the subject of a cert petition anytime soon. There are pending um, petitions for rehearing on banc, which can take a long time in the Ninth Circuit and they are not even going to consider those until they first figure out whether there's anyone to make that motion because the sheriff who lost that case decided he no longer wishes to litigate and the State Attorney General is trying to intervene in the case, and the Ninth Circuit's been holding that intervention motion now for the better part of the year. Uh, There's a question as to whether or not uh, the Attorney General is able to intervene, so it's it's a mess, but there's really nothing on the horizon, uh, this term at least, that I believe would get uh, into the court uh, on that issue.
0: Thanks. All right. With that, uh, we're going to have to wrap it up. As we're talking, looking ahead to next term, I will mention one other thing. The moderator of the previous panel, my colleague Trevor Burris, has earned himself a great promotion. He'll be the managing editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review uh, next year. Uh, with that, uh, before we thank our panel, just I'll advise you to stay in your seats. Judge Sykes is going to come up. We're going to have the Simon Lecture. And then you'll get your booze and food and everything that, uh, that you came for. But let's uh, give a round of applause to the panel.